Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 6, and our text this morning will be verses 13 through 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20 will be our text this morning. We have moved from a severe warning at the beginning of chapter 6 into encouragement. And then an exhortation following the encouragement to be imitators of those who preceded us. And that moves into our text that we have this morning. And so let us hear this word from God. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God. May he bless the reading of it. If we read this text and merely saw a call to imitate Abraham, we would be rather discouraged this morning. Actually, what we see in the emphasis of the text is not how great Abraham was, but how great our God is. And we're going to see that through the greatness of God's promise given first to Abraham and realized in Christ and the greatness of our hope that we have in Christ. And you'll notice that it begins with a connection to this call to imitate Abraham, in verse 13, begins with 4, which is connecting us to what was said in verse 12. You notice in verse 12 it says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now this is, this is pointing us later to chapter 11 where we see those faithful men that came before us, those faithful women that came before us as examples, but it's particularly here going to point to Abraham as a means of imitation. And Abraham's brought out right away. We see this idea that he is the one who has inherited this promise. And we see here a call to imitate him, and he is the example to imitate. Now what we will see here 
in this example to imitate, as we look at it, we see Abraham is a wonderful example for imitation. But again, that would be discouraging if I had to compare myself to Abraham. If I had to compare myself to him and walk exactly how he did. The focus isn't on, in other words, how we can be greater or how we can be better. The example is that we have a great God because we are weak, fallible humans. And so while we do have a wonderful example, the main focus is God's goodness, God's mercy, God's grace, God's condescension to mankind. You see, God makes a promise to Abraham. Verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham. The thing is, is that God was not obligated to make a promise to Abraham. In other words, Abraham did not earn God's promise. Abraham did not do anything that required God to respond to him. God's obligation to Abraham flows out of God's eternal decree to choose Abraham to be his man that he would choose. It was God's decision to call Abraham among all the people of the earth. What does that speak of? That God looks out on all of mankind, all of mankind rejecting God? Abraham rejecting God? But God chooses him among all the people of the earth is pure grace in Abraham's life. Just as when God calls you, it's pure grace in your life. You did nothing to earn it. And he confirms this promise to call Abraham and these promises that are given to Abraham. He not only gives a promise to Abraham, but notice what it says is he had no one greater by whom to swear, so he swore by himself. God confirms his promises to Abraham by swearing to himself. Who else would God swear to? Who else would God call upon? There's none greater than God. There's none greater that God could appeal to. God is perfect. God is without limitation. He is the creator. He is our great God. He is the one who gives great promises. And he does this so wonderfully to us that he swears by his own self. This shows us the greatness of God because there was none greater than him whom he could swear by. You know, the word great, it's a lot like the word awesome. We use it often, and we misuse it. We've actually hijacked words like great. We'll say, that's a great movie. Well, compared to what is it great? That's a great singer, or that's a great actor, or that's a great book. It's really maybe not great. It just rises above the level of mediocrity. If we're just being honest, we're so quick to call something great that it great loses some of its impactfulness. And when we see the word here, great, we can't just think that God is greater. God is the greatest in the sense that he's just a little bit above anything else we've seen that's good. God is infinitely great. God is infinitely greater than anything else. 
And so this is why, as we see in the text, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, which is to say, this is the greatest act that God could do for mankind in establishing to mankind his promise. God has no one he can appeal to. You think of kids on a playground and how they say things. I, oh, I swear. I don't believe you well. I swear and they say something higher or something that is going to bind them. That, oh, he went there. It must be true then. Well, there's no one that God can swear to that is greater than him. And what does God promise to Abraham? As he swears by himself, well, he he promises offspring, he promises land, he promises blessing, he promises that kings will come from his line. And why does he promise these things to Abraham? This is where we have to be crystal clear in our understanding of the Bible's theme is this, is he promises these things to Abraham because Abraham will be the seed through which his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes. He chooses Abraham as in a promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. If you want to turn there with me for a second, we'll see this, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when the Lord is actually speaking to the the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a promise that by the seed of the woman, God will send one to reverse the curse. That God will send one to rescue mankind and to defeat the serpent, whereas Adam failed and actually chose to worship the creation rather than the creator, God promises, I will send a second Adam that will accomplish what the first Adam failed at. And as history unfolds, God chooses a people through which this Messiah will come. And Abraham is the one he chooses through which the Messiah will come. And so God promises to Abraham these things will happen, which is to say that he will be the one and through which will come the Messiah. In verse 14 of Hebrews 6, We read what that swearing is in verse 14. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's the promise. And this specific reading is from Genesis chapter 22. Now in chapter 22 of Genesis is where God tells Abraham, go sacrifice your only son to me. Isaac. And after he goes through with this, before God stops him from it, after he does this, it reads in verse 16, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. 
your offspring. And that beginning part there is, I will surely bless you, is exactly what the author of Hebrews quotes. I will surely multiply your offspring, and the continuing of this promise is, as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. That's a specific reference point of the promise of Abraham. And so something extraordinary is taking place that God comes to Abraham and makes this promise to him and swears it by an oath. This was not just merely God simply speaking to Abraham and saying, I'm going to do this for you, but God goes an extra step for the sake of mankind. And so something extraordinary is taking place. And the other thing is is about this promise that we see in Genesis 22 that is to Abraham, it is a recapitulation of all of the other promises that were given to Abraham. You begin seeing a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, then Genesis chapter 15, then you go into Genesis chapter 18, you come into Genesis chapter 22, and you see the same promise repeated over and over again to Abraham. God continually reminded Abraham of his promise to bless him, to give him children, to give him land, and to protect him. And God reminds him of this over and over again throughout Genesis. Now, the specific point that we're told that we are to imitate, you see it in verse 15. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So Abraham's patience is what's given. This is our example of imitation is that as you're a sojourner, as you're an exile in this world, and you get to the end of Hebrews, you see Abraham again looking forward to that city that was foundation is not built here, as our example of a patient one waiting for the fulfillment of the promise. Why do we see the attribute of patience mentioned as our example of imitation? Well, when you read Genesis chapter 22, Abraham has a son, Isaac. The promise, though, is given in Genesis 12, when Abraham's still a young man. It's not realized until Isaac comes along. And I think you know the story, but it's important that we look at this, is that when the promise is given in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is of an age where he can have offspring. Where his wife, Sarah, could have children. And God makes this promise to him when he's young. So, if that promise is made when he's young, Abraham's probably thinking, well, then I'll have a kid here any day. But that doesn't happen. Years go by, and years go by, years go by, and no child. You get into the confusing part with Hagar where Sarah goes, well, take Hagar. And you see the birth of Ishmael when Abraham listened to the voice of his wife. 
You see, Abraham, in receiving this promise and it being given to him and over and over again, is even at the point where it was past being humanly possible for him to have a child. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 17, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? You You think about that. Think about that at 50. Think about that at 60. Think that about 70. This is 90. Abraham's arm would be worn out for throwing the baseball when he gets to the kid gets to be a teenager. 190. And God says, Well, you're going to have a kid. You're going to have a child. And when Isaac is finally born, what do we read God tell Abraham? In Genesis chapter 22, again, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son. And by the way, Genesis 22 continually emphasizes that. Take your son, oh, by the way, your only son. Your only son, Isaac whom you love. Go to Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. That's extraordinary. At this point in Abraham's life, he finally sees the promise coming about in Isaac. And then God tells Abraham, go slaughter Isaac. Go sacrifice him on the hill where I will tell you. Abraham knew that the Lord would provide a burnt offering, and the Lord certainly did provide a burnt offering. What's interesting is the promise is beginning to be realized in Isaac But there's something about the promises that are given to Abraham that we have to deal with, and it's somewhat paradoxical. We're told here that in Hebrews that he inherited the promise, but yet Abraham didn't fully receive the full promise, did he? In fact, if you look in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13, we read this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. In other words, so how does Abraham receive the promise yet he doesn't? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, we read this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac And who he had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham receives those promises in a resurrected Isaac 
as it says that figuratively speaking, he brings him back from the dead. That is the beginning of those fulfillment promises to Abraham that Abraham was to receive. Now we're called to imitate Abraham. And specifically, we're called to imitate his patience as he awaited that. You think you put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Well, I'm a young man and God promised me that I'm going to have offspring and the years pass by and the years pass by and the years pass by. There's no kids. Wonder what that does to a person. Wonder what that did to Abraham. But in many ways, we, we experience in life many things where sometimes we might question, is God really in control of things? You might even think at certain points, does God even care? All the suffering that we're going through, all of these things that we experience or that we see, or that we feed into our brains by turning on the news or reading it or wherever we get our social media, we might think, is God in control or does God even care about me? It may even seem as if God's promises that He has given to the church that are coming from His Word may even be at odds with our experience in life. I think that that was the case with Abraham. What he was promised, and what a good majority of his life that he lived, his experience was at odds with what God had promised. That's why his patience is our example. That's why we're called to imitate his patience. And the, the beautiful thing about Abraham as our example Abraham rested in one thing, and that was God's word. That was the foundation of his patience. That is how he endured, is because God had promised him. God had spoken to him and said, I will do this. And because Abraham knew who God was, he was able to walk with patience in his life. And I I just want us to see the nature of this. Verse 16 gives us an example that we can understand of why God gave his word to Abraham in this way. And then we can then examine the nature of God and God's promise. Here's the example, verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. In other words, in our human experience, this is what we do. Again, go back to the children on the playground that say, I swear, well, I swear by this. Okay, that settles it. That's final. That's our human experience. That's how we conduct business. That's how our our legal system works, is that we swear upon something greater than ourselves to uphold the truth. That's what we know, that's what we experience, is that we would do that. One of the things that we also experience, too, is that we break oaths. 
An oath is really only as good as our word is, right? And what do we know about the character of mankind? It's depraved. No one does righteous, no one does good. All seek after their own selfish desires, no one seeks after God. That's a description of the totality of mankind that has fallen, that is separated from God, that is at enmity with God. So what do we know in our experience about someone swearing an oath, even if they do it on a Bible in front of a judge? It's not always guaranteed that they're going to be truthful. In fact, aren't we rather cynical about it? Where did that cynicism come from? Well, just observing people living in this world leads to that. We just have experienced so much falsities that when we think of this oath, we see people that break their promises. So what we have to see here is who it is that makes this promise. And that's where we begin to see the unfolding in the nature of God's promise, which flows from God himself. And, 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 and Paul, in telling us this in verse 17, begins to tell us the nature of God's promise. So when God, verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. You see, God did not have to give an oath. Why did he give an oath? Because that's what we do. That's what gives us some sort of comfort in the fact that we believe someone's telling the truth. And so God enters into this in a way that we could understand. But he did not have to give an oath because his word is truth. God is truth. God is pure. It is impossible for God to be untruthful, for he never acts in a way that is inconsistent with his nature. Is it impossible for God to do some things? Yes, it's impossible for God to do some things. God cannot lie. God will never act inconsistently with who he is. Otherwise, he would fail to be who he is. But he does give an oath, and the text tells us why. To show more convincingly is what the text says. His word is enough because he's truth. But he does it with an oath to make it more convincing for us. In other words, God did not have to swear by himself, but God does this for our sake. Anytime God reveals himself to mankind, it is a condescension of God himself to mankind. Because God is, remember, greater than all. He is incomprehensible, but he's knowable because he makes himself known by revealing himself. And every time he reveals himself by his word, it is less than who he is because it could not fully capture who he is. So you could think of it in this way. God stoops down for our sake to make himself known. God condescends. In this, 
But God was not bound to do this. He did not have to do it. He could have just simply spoken to him and it would have been enough. But he does make an oath. And we read this, So by two unchangeable things, we have assurance of this oath. We have assurance of the promise. We have an assurance of God. And what are those two unchangeable things? It's his word and the oath. As we've already seen, it's impossible for God to lie. What is the characteristic of Satan, according to Jesus? He's a liar. He was a liar from the beginning. What do we see here? That our God is truth and His Word is truth. It's impossible for God to lie. So the oath was unnecessary, but for our sake... For our benefit, for our encouragement, he gives us an oath. Which introduces the, another impossible thing for God to do, and that's to break an oath. And why is it impossible for God to break an oath? I, just look over at Genesis 15, where we see the, the oath... You read in verse 9, as God's speaking to Abraham, he says in in Genesis 15, verse 9, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. So what's taking place here? Well, in ancient covenants, and I know we've covered Genesis 15 in the past, but just as a reminder, in covenants, what would take place is the splitting of these animals. And the two respective parties then would walk between the animals in a covenant ceremony. And the the symbolism of this was, if I break my end of the covenant or my end of the promise, or if I break my word of this agreement that we're entering into, may I become like these animals and torn asunder. So that was the symbolism of it. So if we just stop here at verse 10, we might envision that Abraham is going to walk between these animals with God somehow. But that's not what takes place, is it? Actually, what we read is this in verse 12, and as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And you skip to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. What's taking place? Abraham doesn't walk through there because Abraham would not and could not keep the, his end of the deal. God himself passes 
between the animals to say that if I should break this promise, may I become like these animals. This introduces us to the second impossible thing. It is impossible for God to die. God is life. In him was life. So God's word and God's oath are those two promises, those two unchangeable things that God voluntarily binds himself in this promise so that if it was broken, God himself would cease to be. And this is impossible before because God is. How does God introduce himself to Moses? As I am. God is. In him is life. He is life. Life is in him. God is truth. If this changed, he would not be God. In other words, the promise is based on the very essential being of God himself. In order for the promise to break, God would have to cease to be, which God cannot cease to be. And so the promise given is rooted in the very greatness of God. We see how great God is, but I want you to notice how great He is to us. Notice what the text says. This is for we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. This promise the oath, the extraordinary condescension that God went through for this promise was for our encouragement. It was to help us. These people, that these Hebrews, they had, they had set their hearts upon Christ. They had trusted in Christ. That's why Paul calls them beloved. In verse 9, after giving them a severe warning, But yet they were facing setbacks. They were facing persecution. And what was discouraging for them, they are being encouraged by the promise that they have in Christ. Despite what seemed impossible, they and we are reminded of God's great promise. So here it is is hang tight. Abraham dealt with the impossible, but in Christ all things are possible, and Christ was the fulfillment of all of those promises. So be encouraged. Hang on to the hope that you have. Be encouraged by this, by knowing who God is and how great God is, and what God has done in His condescension for mankind. So when you're struggling with doubts, when you're struggling with difficult times, when you have suffering, when life seems to be collapsing in around you, 
look to God. Our, our tendency is to inwardly focus right here, but the text doesn't inwardly focus. The text does not call us to look inwardly. I think actually what we need to see and what we need to focus on according to this text, because of how great God is and the statement of God's greatness, is during those times, the Bible's actually calling us to reflect upon God's nature, God's character, and how God is great. How often is it that that's the advice we're given when we're going through some struggle or suffering? God is great. But that's exactly what the Bible does. Is it unfolds the incomprehensible, eternal nature of a great God. Maybe that's what we need to hear more often of. Rather than what we need to do, we actually see what God has done. We need to be reminded of His greatness. And when we are reminded of His greatness, we are then reminded of the greatness of our hope that we have. You begin to see this unfolded in verse 19, that we have a true and certain hope. It says this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Let's just read that again. We have. This is, this is a present reality for those in Christ. It's something that you have right now, is that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What's that? God's promise. It's a wonderful picture, really. You think of an anchor. But look at the imagery. What does an anchor do? It drops off a boat and goes down to the ocean floor or to the lake floor, and it holds the boat in place. But notice what it says here. We have this as a sure, steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. I forget which Puritan it was that said this is the picture of the anchor going in and grabbing fast in heaven and holding us there. Our hope is in ascends to the very heavens that we have. What we need to recognize, this is already mentioned, this is a present reality. This is something we have. It's right now. What has been promised has been given. And think about this, and this is how it relates to us. Abraham was promised land. He was promised offspring. He was promised protection. He was promised blessing. What are we promised as a people in Christ, as the church? What does Christ promise us? Christ will build us. Christ makes that as an explicit promise. I will build my what? I will build my church. That is a fulfillment to Abraham, by the way. That is a fulfillment of his promises to Abraham that there will be nations that come from Abraham. There, there will be people group that cannot be numbered that will flow from Abraham. We see in Galatians 3, 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
We're that innumerable people. Christ will build us. Christ is building us. Christ promises to build us. But we also see there is a promise to protect. Well, connected to the promise that Christ will build his church, he says he will build his church in what? The gates of hell shall never prevail against it. Christ will protect his church. We're also promised a new heavens and a new earth. We're promised the greatest. We're also promised this as a reality. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're promised that Christ is with us and in us. We're promised the very presence of Christ. We have this right now. This is ours. We await the fullness of it. But the scripture tells us this is ours right now. Eternal life is something you have when you come to Christ. These promises, again, Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Therefore, if you are in Christ, you have received those promises. In Galatians chapter 3, again, we see in verse 29, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We'll go back to Hebrews and just look again what it says. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We have this right now. It's sure is the second thing. Not only is it a present reality that we have this, we have now, but it's also a certain reality. Just as we have seen the anchor holding is not based on our ability to be patient. It's a sure hope that we have, not because we've earned it, not because we can keep it. It's not based on yours or mine's ability to imitate the patience and faithfulness of Abraham. It's not ours as an anchor of the soul because we are able to endure, because we're able to persevere. It is not based on anything we can do, but it is based upon the unchangeableness of God. The entire promise is rooted in the unchangeableness, the immutability of God Himself, that God does not change. In other words, as we have this, we have it because it's not based on us. It's based on what God has done. It's based on who God is and what God has promised to do and that God by His grace gives us this promise. We have to see that God does not change. God is just not looking at mankind and seeing them making choices and then responding to them as if God is in time. God is unchanging. 
We see in James chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is our unchanging God, and so His promises and the realization of those promises and why we have those promises is because God does not change. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. The immutability of God is pretty clear. Our God does not change. And think about this as you think about the, the sureness of His promise to us and why we have this and why it is a certain promise and why that's based in the immutability of God. Think about this for a second. Just run through this thought experiment with me. In order for God to change, God would have to be at odds with Himself and His eternal plan. God would have to be out of harmony with Himself, in other words. But another thing is this, is is change reflects something that we experience that we're changing either to improve or what? Get worse. In order for God to change would mean that something about God was not perfect to begin with. That's the certainty we have is that God does not change in His promises. The sureness and the anchor that we have is because of who our God is and how great of a God we have. When we wrestle with these attributes of God, it actually helps us to see His greatness and the greatness of our anchor that we have. It is God. We're sure of this is that we also have the presence of God continuing in verse 19. It's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And this is pulling us back to going behind the veil where the high priest would go once a year into the holies of holies. But this is an amazing statement is that what it's teaching us because we see in verse 20, is it's connected to Jesus. Our hope then is where Jesus is. Once a year in the Old Covenant, the high priest would go on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. He would go once a year representing the people after he had purged and sacrificed for his own sins. But what do we see here? We have it right now. In our union with Christ, we have access to the presence of God. Chapter 4, verse 16 of Hebrews. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Not only do we have access, but God calls us to his very presence. We don't have to wait for that. For once a year, we don't have to rely on an imperfect mediator, but rather we have an accomplished reality of this. This is something we have, and it's sure, which means it's certain. Why? Because it's established in Christ. 
The certainty of what we have is based on our forerunner. Look at verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. One of the most influential theologians of the last hundred years said his favorite word of the entire Bible was the word, on our behalf. God did this on our behalf. For whom does Jesus mediate? Specifically, his people. And if you are in Christ, that text tells you this, is that Christ did this on your behalf. He did this for you, for his people. This is for those that have called upon the name of Christ. On our behalf indicates a specific people. Jesus did not mediate on behalf of those that have not called upon his name. He mediates on behalf of those that have called upon his name. And specifically, we read that he has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we're introduced to Melchizedek again this mysterious figure of Scripture that we began to see introduced in chapter 5, and after Melchizedek was introduced, Paul says, you ain't ready for that because you become dull of hearing, and he goes off into this long exhortation. But then we see, once again, introduced is Melchizedek, and that Christ is of the line of Melchizedek. That he is our Melchizedekian high priest that stands on our behalf. He is king, and he is priest. You see, we have no claim to God except by the blood of our great high priest, the one from the line of Melchizedek. He has secured it for us. Friends, this is the greatness of our hope. Jesus. And what he has done on our behalf. That's our hope. It's a certain hope. It's a sure hope. Someone once argued with me that you could not have an actual certainty of hope. And my response to them was that it depends upon whom your hope is set on. Of whether you can have a sure hope or not. But the text tells us this, we have a steady anchor in Christ, that God promises by his word, which is truth, and swears by an oath, which if broken would lead to his death, which is impossible. What this text tells us, that if you are in Christ, Christ has secured our salvation for us, that our anchor is Christ, our refuge is Christ, our hope is Christ. And if you are in Christ, this is an accomplished reality right now for you, that He has brought you past the veil to the presence of the Father. But if you do not know Christ, you are outside the veil in the place where there is gnashing of teeth. And so the call then is this, to look to Christ. Trust Him as your refuge. To see him as your refuge is meaning this, is you no longer look to yourself, but you look to him. It's to no longer rely on being a good person and recognizing that being a good person is impossible. It's to no longer see your own merits as the means of salvation, but to trust in him, our rock, our rock of ages. Cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Friends, will you 
come to that rock of ages this morning, our sure and steady anchor? Will you call upon his name? Will you trust in the ancient of days? Will you look upon him on his cross? Will you by faith be covered by his righteousness? Will you stand in him on that great day of judgment? And will you, or will you stand on your own? Will you be welcome home to your eternal resting or cast away to your eternal punishment? Will you be told, well done, my good and faithful servant, or will you be told away from me, I never knew you? Are you on the wide path that leads to destruction, or are you on the narrow path that leads to life? Where are you this morning? Where is your hope? Where is the anchor for your soul? If you're in Christ, these promises are for you. But if you're not, the only promise you have is that of judgment. And so, friends, come to Christ if you don't know Christ. He calls you, He commands you to come unto Him. And if you do know Christ, friends, hang on tight and don't let go, for He'll never let go of you. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of the assurance we may have of this great hope. For You are our great God. And you provided us with such a great salvation and such a great Savior. Father, help our hearts feel rested in the assurance of your love. Give our hearts peace in times of turbulence and suffering. And if there's any that do not know the Lord Jesus, Father, I pray that you would call them now, for we know that your call upon them will bring them to the Son, and that your Spirit will seal them. So we pray, Father, you call them now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Please stand as we sing our...